from VibePair's New York City headquarters in an echoey office, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VibePair podcast. And uh, Zach, I mean, we're in the process of moving our offices. So uh, things are crazy in the current office and the conference room's full and someone took it. So I ran uh, to another floor and there was this empty office and I'm sitting in it and I'm sure everyone can hear the echo. And I know people in some of the podcast reviews have complained about my sound quality. I promise it will get better when uh, we move to the new location. Uh, we're going to have a, a full studio inside of it, which should be cool. Um, but until then... I really apologize. Please bear with us on this episode. Look, let's be clear, people. The content is worth it. <laughs> that's that's the that's the play, at least. Yeah, come on, content's worth it. <sighs> so, Adam, you know, uh, not this may not be necessarily relatable to to every listener out there. Apologies for that. But uh, you and I both finished our uh, yearly Yom Kippur fast yesterday. How'd it go for you? Oh, you had to take it there. I did. Uh, you really you bageled me. Um, <laughs> It was good, man. <laughs> it was good. <laughs> Did you what? So, so, uh, so, is there like a big tradition in your family of uh, like what you do when the fast is over? I mean, we go over to friends' houses and eat lots of bagels, like you just bageled me. Yeah, um, gotcha. yeah, bagel blocks, all that good stuff. Uh, some good drinks. Some good drinks. We had some uh, some some good wine. Um, some fernet was pulled out. Uh-huh. Uh, it was fun. It was fun. Cool. Yeah, I, I got to tell you. So you know, my my tradition, I guess, such as it is, is um, my wife and I usually go out to dinner because um, we're not interested in putting together a meal. And um, my family is sort of spread out enough and not particularly observant, so it's not really. We're usually, as far as I know, generally the only people fasting. And so uh, this year, though, uh, for a variety of reasons, including like the the holiday falling a little later on the on our calendar than usual. It was kind of later than we wanted to when we got out of synagogue. And, you know, as you all know, we have a one-year-old. And so he was uh, reasonably well-behaved through services, but definitely was starting to lose it. So we picked up some dim sum to go and ate at home. And uh, it was fine. I didn't drink anything because I'll be totally honest, I by the end of that, I'm just like, I, I, I think a drink and I might have passed out. But um, I, I did. I think the thing I missed most is coffee. I feel bad. but But I was just like, man, that caffeine headache was killing me the last half of the day. So, you know, that's the deal. Yes. You know, I mean, you know, people have a whole, you know, they have their whole belief on whether or not you should be allowed to like drink water or if you should have coffee in the morning of or whatever, just to get rid of that headache. But I had the headache too. It was pretty terrible. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's just, it comes with the territory. You kind of just got to put up with it. It's not certainly, you know, it's not the, uh, not the, not the most I've ever suffered in my life. Thankfully I have, I have a, I have a drinking related question though for you too, before we get into cool. today's topic, yeah, which is, so I had this experience recently where I was, uh, I was with a, uh, one of my, the sales reps who calls on me for my restaurant and they were, they were pouring some wine for me and they were saying to me that, you know, the this wine that they were pouring, which was uh, from a producer in Oregon, and is like definitely not natural wine in the way that you and I might scoff at it, but is you know like minimal intervention, all those sorts of things. And they were saying that you know the the winemaker was telling them when they were when they were I guess sort of introing the wine to them that they came really close to not releasing the wine commercially because there was a lot of bottle variation. And for those of you who aren't familiar, bottle variation basically means with some wines, especially wines with like limited sulfur use and other kinds of things, bottle to bottle, they can taste pretty different and not necessarily better or worse, although sometimes definitely better or worse, but, but just different. And that's a thing that, you know, we don't necessarily 
talk about in this industry a lot, maybe when we talk about it with the, sort of at the fringe of, of natural wine. But but I actually have been finding just more and more bottle variation, I feel like, even with wines that I wouldn't expect it in lately. And I don't know, is that has that been coming up for you? Like, I, do you, when you guys do reviews, how like it does does that ever uh, cause issues? Or like when you go back and revisit a wine? Because I just, I, I don't know why, maybe it's just in my head, but I just, I've been sort of noticing it lately more than, than ever before. There's like issues with bottle variation? And yeah, and it's, and it's not like, again, it's not good or bad exactly. It's just they taste different. And that strikes me as like odd, if not bad. I mean, we definitely, when we do do reviews, we ask producers to send at least two bottles. It's actually really interesting how few producers do do that. Um, and when when there does seem like there's something off with a bottle, we will open the second. I will say that for the most part, like unless it's corked, if there's something off with the bottle the second time, it's usually like the same kind of fault, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah. Like, you know, the winery is just dirty or something and the whole wine is dirty. The, the, the place where we had really interesting bottle variation recently wasn't actually wine. It's been beer. Oh, There's been like some people who've sent us like saisons and stuff like that. And we did a big saison tasting recently. And people were t- saying that like some of them, t- like one of the bottles tasted flat and the other didn't, or one tasted, you know, a little funky and the other didn't. I think that, you know, I guess that just happened, but, um, it is why like you especially when you when you try to go assess a beverage it's really important to ensure they do send you more than one just to make sure or else you're going to judge the wine or the beer or whatever based on that one bottle and that that can often times not be a great result for the for the producer sure and i think that's a good uh, sort of approach when you're certainly when you're reviewing things and when you're when you are trying to assess something but but i think it's actually this this question of sort of ver- bottle variation whether it's beer wine whatever is really an important thing to keep in mind for for our listeners who are not in the industry because you know i i actually think it's you know i was talking to the sales rep about this and i said you know boy like i don't really like i like the wine all right but like but if you're telling me that some of the bottles that i'm going to get are going to taste not even inherently worse but just different than the way this one tastes in a way that would be noticeable to people like i can't put that in my program because how am i supposed to sell a bottle to a guest and say well well it could taste like this or i guess it could taste like that like there's some variation there like i i get that some amount of variation is unavoidable and the more we shift to small production you know we, we don't add necessarily as much um as many sort of preservatives and things like that which can have benefits and downsides but it does lead to this weird world where like it's hard to sell a bottle of wine or, or a beer to someone if you as the buyer, even if you've tasted it, don't actually know what it's going to taste like when they open it. Like that's that's a weird place to be in for someone in my position because I like to feel like I I can explain – I may not be able to explain it well, but I should be – I should know what the wine or beer should taste like, right? Yeah, you should. Okay. That's what I thought. I mean, but look – I mean, I don't know. I, th- I think that's the big issue, though, is like, I mean, you should know what it's supposed to taste. You should, I don't know, you're getting into a way bigger conversation about, you know. Yeah, we'll save it for another episode. Exactly. Like, is it is it better to have the variation? Is that like the romanticism of these products? Or like, should you expect consistency across, you know, bottle after bottle after bottle, which is something that, you know, the big producers just do better. Um, I don't know. Yeah, we'll talk about it. We'll, we'll, we'll collect our thoughts. We'll talk about it another time. <laughs> Well, then let's get into today's topic, Zach, okay? Probably good. Um, sorry, this, this, this just this echoey room is so distracting. I'm going to talk about it the whole podcast. Uh, I, <laughs> it's so annoying. Um, so basically, you know, the biggest thing we want to talk about 
on today's episode is this idea of signature cocktail. So I think you and I have had the conversation a, a bunch back and forth, uh, and that is whether or not actually uh, signature cocktails matter or if the consumer at the end of the day would just want a fucking Negroni, right? So like you, you come into a cocktail. I mean, it doesn't matter where you go at these, nowadays, right? Like let's set the seat. Let's set the scene. You know, you walk into a bar, they present you with this list, and the list is usually eight to ten cocktails that have these funny names, you know, whether they're named after TV shows or random literary figures or just they're a funny play on words, whatever. There are these names of cocktails um, that you've never heard of before because they're the bar's quote-unquote signature, even if those cocktails may be a riff on a classic. And you then decide whether or not you order those or you take the risk of ordering off the menu and ordering that Manhattan you wanted in the first place. Um, and mm-hmm. I, I think that it's, it's really interesting to, to consider like what is the point of signature cocktails and does every single bar in the world actually need them, especially in wake of, you know, what's been happening recently in terms of, you know, lots of bars now competing for being best bar in this place or top 50 that or whatever. Like does – is signature cocktails what matters or do you just need to be able to make a good drink? So I think this is a really interesting question. And I think, you know, you you sort of hit on a thing at the end there that, that I think is important to note, which is I'm going to mostly address my comments here towards most bars, not the bars that are competing for national or international acclaim because they're doing something totally different in the same way that restaurants that want to be considered, you know, that want three Michelin stars or want to be on the, you know, in the conversation for the top restaurants in the world by whom at whatever sort of ranking organization you think of, you know, they're, they're trying to do something that's fundamentally different than even a really nice restaurant in most other places that isn't looking for that kind of those kinds of accolades. So for the average bar or even an above average bar, I think the signature cocktail list in, at this point in time is actually more fraught with danger than um, than, it, than it provides opportunity. And, and I'll give some context. So when I started out working in the restaurant industry and, and bartending, the the number of cocktails that the average person who came into the bar was familiar with was really limited. I mean, people basically knew, you know, they maybe knew what a martini was. They'd probably heard of a Manhattan but or an old-fashioned but maybe didn't know what went in it. I mean, people were not drinking whiskey very much in those days. You know, they certainly had never heard of the co- some of the cocktails we just referenced, like a Negroni. People didn't know what that was. I mean, obviously, people within the industry and a few devotees knew what it was, but it was nowhere near the the cocktail um, sort of in the co- in the cultural zeitgeist the way that it is now. And so, at th- at that point in time, you could sort of make a reputation for yourself as a bar just by making these classic cocktails really well and then maybe having a riff or two on them. And and that's really what most signature cocktails were, was, hey, let's take a drink that's a well-established formula, be that the Manhattan, the Negroni, whatever, change an ingredient out, maybe change two ingredients out, and call it something else. And, And that model works reasonably well, but the problem that I think most bartenders are facing between the decade plus that's passed since the cocktail boom and the ubiquity of cocktail information on the internet, there's nothing new left. You can't really invent a thing, basically. I mean, there there's maybe some some exceptions. And so now what does making a signature cocktail mean? Well, either you make a bunch of stuff yourself and you can sort of rightfully call that a signature cocktail. You're doing a bunch of stuff in-house and it's your syrup and your infusion and your tincture or whatever. And that's great. Or you basically just com- start combining random shit and hope it works. And and for every one of those that works out, 500 of them suck, or at least are not very good. And it kind of leads us back to this place that I think we were inevitably destined to end up at, which was, for the most part, the cocktails that we consider real classics are classics for a reason, because by and large, they can't really be improved on. Like, yeah, there are cool Manhattan variations, but really, frankly, honestly, 
I think the Manhattan is the best drink that uses that basic formula. Like, that's why it's the most popular. It's not just because it has a catchy name or, you know, was the first invented. I, I, that That's kind of my take on it. I, mean, I tend to agree. I mean, I think that, like, they're definitely – where I disagree is at those cocktail bars where the cocktails, cocktails are truly original, sure. right? So, like, for example um, – the clumsies in Athens, right? Like I had a cocktail and you know, it's really interesting. It's always when cocktails, you know, exactly what's, what's curious about this is it's probably, it's similar to like the restaurants that do molecular gastronomy, right. That win all the awards. So, you know, mm-hmm. you had El Bulli and Nayef Disfrutar and um, you know, uh, restaurants like that across the world who are, are sort of like doing something that makes one thing tastes like something else. So I really do think that at certain cocktail bars, that's where like the still the magic lies. So for example, like I was in Athens and I went to the clumsies and they created a cocktail that that tasted like a Greek salad in a glass, right? Mm -hmm. So they, they put together a bunch of different, uh, spirits and, you know, they had, I think like a, a cucumber water they had made and they had tomato water that they had made. And I think they mix it with a gin and whatever. And when you had the cocktail, it tasted like Greek salad, including like the feta in the Greek salad. I mean, it was crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, and like, uh, Licoria Limontour, which always sort of like, you know, we, we love here at Vine Pair. They're like, probably I would, they definitely are the best bar in Mexico city, maybe the best bar in South, you know, in central and South America combined um they make when they came to new york and did a pop-up for us they made like a, a tacos al pastor cocktail right it mm-hmm. like tasted like an al pastor taco um and wow. that i thought was super amazing right but i i do agree with you when it then comes to a place that's just doing like oh this is like our version of a manhattan that's not as good as real manhattan i'm kind of like well then what are you doing you know, like, what, yeah. like what, what is so interesting about this? Or the only other thing I think is cool is when a place says, like, we're going to make 20 riffs on this one classic drink. Then, then at least I find it interesting, but it's more like an intellectual curiosity, right? It's like, like oh, we're going to do 20 riffs on a Manhattan or 20 riffs on a Martini yeah. or 20 riffs on a Negroni. It's interesting. But again, like, I, I, I mean, I, I think if you ask bars that do that, like, at the end of the end, they get covered a lot, right? So, like, people like us write about them because we're like, oh, isn't it so cool? Such and such bars come out with a list that's devoted to, you know, the Boulevardier and they're making a ton of different riffs on it. Are any of them made with any of them made with rye or are they all made with bourbon? I knew you were going to say that. But, anyways, <laughs> uh, you know, like, that's interesting in theory and it gets people to write about them. But I wonder if like for the most part, if we pulled these bars and one of the bars that does this a lot that I'm thinking of is Dante, which was just named, you know, number one bar in the world by 50 best bars. Although let's not talk about them a lot because they also give an award to a misogynist. But anyways, um, you know, they, they do the, the riff on the Negroni and they do tons of different Negronis. And I, I would, I'd be interested to ask Naren, um Young, who's the, you know, the, partner and beverage director there, like, how many people just order the classic Negroni? How many customers? Like, and I would, I would bet that it's more than 50% of all customers. If they're going to order Negroni, just order the classic. Um, because I think that's the majority of what people want. And so I do understand though, when it's a, when it's a place like Dante, that's trying, that's pushing to be like the number one bar in the world, why they would do these kinds of like crazy riffs and, and their own, originals. What I don't get is just the re- the regular bar or the regular restaurant, right? It feels like that's that's where to me it's like, what are you guys doing? Yeah. You know, like when you just go into like the really nice restaurant that just opened on your block or, you know, in the neighborhood and like, yeah, they want to have a cocktail program and that's cool. But then like they have all these 
original cocktails when all anybody really wants is like the classics. But I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe that's crazy. Maybe they would tell me that they do. I mean, if you're, if you're someone who listens to podcasts and you run a beverage program at one of these kinds of restaurants I'm talking about, shoot us an email at podcast.vinepair.com and tell me how many, how many original cocktails you sell. I'm just, I'm curious because it seems like that's, you know, what people feel like they have to do now instead of just putting out a list that's like, look, man, we make the classics really, really well. Well, I think that's a really a really good point, and and I'll say I'll speak from the perspective of someone who who works in I think a restaurant that that does sort of fit that bill in a lot of ways. Like the restaurant I work for, our bar is never going to be a you know even a you know a, not going to contend for any awards in that in that vein or anything. And we're not trying to. That's not the point. I will say that I think there is something that is true, which is there is there feels like still a pressure on restaurants of almost all stripes to have their own sort of custom cocktails now. Whether that pressure is something that still really exists and whether whether we would really lose business if the cocktail list was basically like, hey, we're going to make a, a, what we think is a really great expression of six or eight classic cocktails. And we're not going to necessarily do a bunch of funny, crazy riffs. We're just going to put these things on the on the menu and say, hey, this is how we do it here. And And, and to be fair, we have sort of a house martini and a house Manhattan. Where in a household fashion, where we sort of say this is what we think works best in our restaurant. These are the spirits we use. This is how we make it, and this is kind of the the house style, right? And I think that's a really good model for a lot of restaurants to pick some of those classic cocktails and say, hey, we're, this is our house Negroni. This is our house Daiquiri. This is our house, you know, Manhattan, whatever. I will say that some people still come in, and it's not the way it was five or even you know five or so years ago, maybe even a little more, when at the real height of the sort of custom cocktail craze, people would come into any restaurant, any bar. I, I you know I, I experienced this on on the working side on my end. I heard it from friends, and they would say like, "Oh, I want to try something new." Right, this idea that for people who were sort of getting into cocktails and and really wanted to sort of feel like every person who was behind a bar was this like you know genius you know in plain sight who could like craft something magical. And the reality is like. This is not ever the case. Like most people are bartenders because it's the job that they're good at, but their job does not necessarily include blowing your mind. And it especially doesn't mean, you know, blowing your mind after a decade of people having a lot of exposure to, to, you know, different spirits, different liqueurs, different types of technique. And so you, what you see is like, you know, you were talking about these, you know, molecular gastronomy. I mean, I just was reading a piece um, about, you know, this, all the new sorts of ways to pe- that people have come up with to try and try and do what you're talking about, you know, put flavors in unexpected places. And some of it's like basically deep freezing a spirit so that you can extract the, the water and like m- m- switch it out with something, some other liquid or like that's the kind of stuff that like is cool when some few bars that have, you know, that are really dedicated to, cr- you know, really crazy, intensive, um, elaborate preparations that take multiple days where there's a whole team and they are dedicated to that. And, you know, going into that bar that I'm going to be paying for this, you know, it, we, t- we did our podcast about right. why do cocktails cost what they do? Because if you go to a kind of place like this where someone's spending days and days laboring over something like of course you have to pay 20 25 bucks for a drink like that's just the deal but that should not be what the average drinker expects when they go almost anywhere else like that's just not practical and and frankly you probably are better off as a as a drinker saying I want these other bars to to more focus on the classics to be able to execute them really well and yeah maybe you have one or two signature drinks that are not straight classic cocktails but instead of the expectation being that your 12 cocktail list is 10 
unique cocktails and two classics. Maybe it should be eight or nine or ten classics and one, two, three uh, sort of creations of your own so that, one, you're not expecting too much from a bar team that may or may not be good at making up drinks, and also so that you can be confident that the classics that you do order are going to be well executed because there's something that the bar team should already know how to make and is making on a nightly basis. I agree. I mean, I think, look, <clears throat> some of the, there's, there's some few, a few bars I've been to recently that I feel like do this really well where they've decided like, look, like we're going to do the classics, but we're going to do, you know, we're going to put them in a bottle and, and, and serve them out of the fridge. So they're super cold and, and perfect for you. Or, you know, so we're, we're going to have a reason that it feels a little bit more special than, okay, fine. Like someone ordered another martini and we're going to quickly, you know, mix it up and it's going to, you know, be, be whatever they, you know, they, they figure out some ways to give it a little bit of a flourish. But at the end of the day, I think that for, for the majority of, of places, you're right. Like every market should have a few really special cocktail bars in which there's, you know, truly amazing people behind the bar making really, you know, impressive stuff. Just like every market should have, you know, truly, you know, genre bending restaurants. But for the most part, like most people, when they go out, especially at the restaurant level, which is more of, I feel like what we're talking about than even at the cocktail bar level, you know, want just a really good classic cocktail and being able to have that list. And look, you can say like, hey, you know, we're not doing all 10 of the list aren't the 10 most ordered cocktails, right? So it's not going to be like, okay, gosh, yeah, we have to have a daiquiri and a margarita and a Negroni and a martini and a Manhattan. And, you know, like I get it. You want to go back into one of the old classic books and, you know, pull out some, some cocktails that people may not have heard of for a while, like a paper plane or, you know, a last word or something. That's cool. That's, that's awesome, right? Like you can do that. I'm just saying at, at some point, like at least make it a classic also so that, you know, your customer could go home and maybe make it too. Cause I also think that that's what's so cool is sometimes about discovering cocktails out is that like you can make them when you get home if you really fell in love with them. And for the most part, like these original cocktails, these signature drinks, you're never gonna be able to make, right? It just says on the list, like, uh, I made this with, uh, Amaro, Angostura, bourbon, uh, lemon juice, you know what I mean? And you are like, okay, cool. So even if I wanted to recreate this, I couldn't. And I understand that as the mixologist, you may not want someone to, but for the most part, like that's, people aren't looking just to have drinks they can never recreate again. They're looking to discover cocktails because they're passionate about them and they want to then be able to make them a home for friends. And so I feel like some of the best drinking times I have out is when I discover a cocktail like the paper plane, which I discovered, um, rediscovered or really discovered on my birthday this year when I went to like, I went to ABC kitchen and I went out of the bar to have a drink after work and the bartender was awesome. And she was like, look, let me make you a paper plane, you know, and their entire list was pretty much classic cocktails as well. And I, it, I, I mean, if I'd had one before, I did not remember having it and it was delicious. And now I, I make them at home and drink them all the time. You know what I mean? So like, mm-hmm. I think that's, what's really cool about these classic drinks and a, a restaurant bar program, especially that is willing to yeah. do that. So, okay. So I think on a related vein, I have a question for you, which is how do you, you know, you mentioned them. How do you feel about draft and bottled cocktails? Cause I, I sort of have a complicated set of emotions about them. Bottled cocktails. I like them. I do. I think they're cool. I mean, I, I think especially at places where like it's fast service and you're just looking for someone to have a really quality drink, um, you know, without someone having to, to really mix up a bunch of stuff. But I think the bottle of cocktail is dope. Yeah. I think I, it's funny, you know, I feel sort of, why what do you think you would disagree? I I'm conflicted. Like I said, I have, I have sort of a complicated set of emotions. So on the one hand, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that, like when we talked about canned cocktails a while back, I think there's definitely a place for pre-mixed cocktails, even in 
even in pretty good bars. For one thing, you're right, it expedites service, and that's super useful, whether they're they're bottled or uh, tap cocktails or things like that. I just sort of worry, I don't know, there's something to me that I'm always, as someone who works in the service industry, I'm always a little bit concerned about anything that looks to sort of take any element of skill out of the industry. And, And I just think about bars replacing, you know, experienced bartenders with 21-year-olds who know how to pull a tap and put ice in a glass. And, like, I mean, that's not the worst fate in the world, but I do think, like, there is something where I don't love it when I go to a bar and a lot of the drinks that I'm ostensibly being made were, like, not made by the person in front of me. Like, like I still want to feel like the person behind the bar knows how to make a drink like I, I because then otherwise what am I, because then I'm never going to feel comfortable ordering off menu right you know if all they have are draft and, and bottled cocktails and then I say hey you know I really feel like a margarita which they don't happen to have in either format like do I have any faith that the person who's behind the bar knows how to make that drink I mean I could take a chance I might maybe that's a place where I should not go and drink one of those other things I should only stick with what they have on the list but it just it does feel like you know there there's this sort of point where it go, to me it tips from being like a cool little you know time saver or even an, an assurance of quality but i guess what i mean is if the way i have to be assured that the drink is able to make me a uh, the bar is able to make me a good drink is to make sure that as little as possible is done by the actual bartender then like what am i doing like i'll go drink somewhere else i guess right i agree and I think it also depends. There are some drinks that make sense for me on draft, like things with maybe really precise proportions. Like, actually, I think a draft Negroni isn't the worst thing in the world where, like, you know, you want to be able to get it relatively quickly. But it's a drink where if it's not proportioned correctly, it can be pretty easily fucked up. And maybe that's an OK I drink. We've discussed this before. We have. Um, we've talked about the bottle Negroni as a as a past and future, uh, you know, thing we will see and uh, and I'm sure that's only con- going to continue, but, but I just, I, I don't know. There, there's something to me that just, I still have a, I guess a nostalgia and a romance for, for the bartender making the drink. Yeah. But if you have that nostalgia and romance, I mean, as Tim McCurdy would say at this point, you got to get over it only because, <laughs> only because I mean, at most bars that I go to now, even when they're making signature cocktails, it's all pre-batched, right? So <clears throat> it's very rare now. I mean, I, as much as as Tim wants to also he agrees with you would want to see them make the full drink just because there's a nice there, there's something as you said romantic about it like oh here they are making my 50/50 martini um which is actually a reason he orders 50/50 martinis um yeah no one has you know, those pre-batched <laughs> let me tell yeah, you you know like it almost everyone pre-batches because it's for speed i mean like look i we i went to an event recently where I don't know why the bar – everyone – every place I go now usually has pre-batched, right? I don't know why this bar I went to for this big event had not pre-batched the cocktails. And it's really romantic the first like two minutes you're watching them make drinks for people. And then you're like, holy shit. I'm going to stand here for 45 minutes before I get a drink because the bar is 25 people deep and the bartenders are making every drink from scratch. And then you're like, I totally understand why places batch because if they didn't, we would be here forever all night long. And guess what? People were, and people were starting to get really annoyed. And I was like, I wonder why this is like a cool bar. Why didn't they batch? And like, again, I think it was like the bartenders, you know, the whole team wanting to like show off the skills, which is cool. But at an event where there's a hundred people, that's super annoying. Look, I look, we did pre-batch cocktails at my wedding, man. I understand. 
You got to do it. You got to do it. I think you got to do it. For events, yes, for sure. That's, you know, but moral, the real story of all this is I think like, look, while there is, there's room for signature cocktails, I would say like, it's really, it's got to be a special place, right? Like it's got to be a place that really they're trying to become known for their cocktails, yeah. right? Like if you're going to have signature cocktails, you basically have to be a specialty cocktail bar. Like that's what you do. You do cocktails. If you're a place that does really great food, that does really great wine, that does other things, just put out a classic list, please. Yeah. Or a majority classic list because at the end of the day, that's why people are there and, you know, they just want to drink really good cocktails made by really proficient people, not some random drink that, you know, is basically just a riff on, as you said, the better, you know, the better version that's the classic. Yeah. Yep. I'm with you, man. Well, Zach, always uh, from an echo, from an echoey uh, from an echoey empty office. I will bid you adieu. Always a great conversation for those again who bared with us through this through this episode of Echoes. Uh, I really appreciate it. Please again, always leave us a review or rating. It helps people discover the show. Just don't complain about this episode with the Echoes because I was pretty honest that we couldn't help it. Um, <laughs> Zach, I will talk to you again next week. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show, we'd love if you rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. Vinepair is recorded in New York City at Vinepair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patry, and the show is produced by Zach Jawal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire Vinepair staff including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening, and see you next week.